Hello, and welcome again to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Rich Chrisman, chair of Forefront Festival, and it's my pleasure to bring to you today a conversation starting with our friend, designer, reader, poet, preacher, coming from Denton, Texas, Houston Arledge. Houston, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm very excited for this discussion today, uh, and I've just been uh, reading, uh, writing some myself here and there, and then amping up for the next semester of school. So I love higher education. Aren't we all? But, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, I'm in lower education, as listeners know, but still still getting ready for school. <laughs> still reading hey, books. Hey, any education is good. Uh, and I'm pleased to be able to introduce our top billed guest of the hour. Uh, she is the award-winning author of On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. She is an academic, a great reader, a writer and speaker with a tremendous skill to connect the cultural, classical and spiritual. Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. How are you doing today, Karen? I'm doing great. Thank you. Awesome. We're awesome. so happy you're here. We have to say, uh, so some some of the Forefront team that's often on the podcast is, you know, was unable to be on this episode, but we as a team have been talking about whether, you know, when was the right time to reach out to Karen Swallow Pryor and invite her on the podcast for probably two years now. And then when we saw the, you know, the upcoming book, The Evangelical Imagination, dropping in just a few days. By the time you're hearing this episode, it probably will have just released. So go pick up a copy. We'll talk about that more later. But when we saw this book on the horizon, we were like, now is the time. <laughs> so so thank you so much for uh, accepting that invite to come on and have a convo with us. See, I wrote it just for this, right? Just for you guys yeah. to give you an opportunity to have me on, really. Yeah. You know, yeah. the <laughs> Lord works in mysterious ways. So yeah. thank well, you. And that. just before this, uh, I, I had just finished leading a book club through On Reading Well with Forefront, uh, which oh. was awesome. Uh, we went through many of the classical pieces of literature that you reference alongside your chapters, uh, and we had many fruitful discussions. So it, oh. it was great. So Glad to hear that. So very quickly, because uh, we have a lot to discuss, um, on Forefront 360, we always, uh, you know, put guests through something we call the lightning round, where we ask a couple quick questions of varying levels of intensity and our our ask for you is that you answer the question as quickly as you can with you know what what first comes to mind so we're gonna hit you with a couple questions here who is your favorite musical artist right now the lumineers Ooh, great choice one. what are you currently enjoying reading right now i'm reading the Optimist's daughter by eudora welty oh okay um the lord of the rings or the chronicles of narnia Pride and Prejudice. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> All right. If I have to choose the Chronicles of Narnia for sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Jazz or classical music? Classical. New York or Los Angeles? New York. Coffee or tea? Coffee for sure. <laughs> so now if this is a tougher one. If you could only read from this point on Southern American writers or Northern American writers? Which one would you pick? You know, I teach British literature. Um, we so, thought that's why it's a curveball. Um, okay, well, since, yeah, it is a curveball. All right, I'm going to, because of Flannery O'Connor, mm. I'm going to choose Southern. Cool. Okay. I have noticed an affinity. I'm breaking the lightning round here a second, but I've noticed yeah. an affinity <laughs> in many of our guests for, for Southern literature, which is why I thought of that question. I was just curious. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, last question. Modern art or medieval art? Medieval. Okay. Cool. So, uh, while we, there's many things that we'd love to talk to you about, Karen, we're going to focus around your uh, newest book, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis, which is from Brazos Press and is releasing, if I'm not mistaken, on August 8th, 2023. That's correct. It's Excellent. right around the corner yeah, from this conversation. Yeah. So. Right around the corner. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of things from the book that we'd love to talk to you about. We're also not going to fully spoil the book because we right. want people to enjoy reading it as much as we did. So um, let's start here, if you don't mind. Without getting too much into the titular crisis that the book talks about yet, um, what was your inspiration to write this book? 
and how did it come about? Hmm. Yeah, well, actually, when I envisioned the book, um, there was it wasn't really so much a crisis. And even um, when I was at the titling stage and the subtitling stage with my editors, I, I actually resisted the word crisis at first. So hmm. it's just funny that but then eventually I was like, no, um, yeah, let's go with crisis. <laughs> so things have changed in the you know couple of years I've been working on this book. But the beginning of it, it really was something that I talk about in the introduction. And that is teaching um, in an evangelical setting. And a lot of what I teach is Victorian or, you know, British literature around the Victorian period. And um, it was really in, in um, that setting teaching evangelical students who'd been brought up in sort of an American contemporary evangelical subculture and teaching this Victorian literature. And my students would just make the, I would teach them about the, you know, the characteristics of the age and we would study the literature and students just started to tell me how much that literature sounded like what they had been raised with and taught. Um, And so we just started to ask the question together, well, what you know, what really is Christian, what is rooted firmly in the Bible, and what is really just Victorian about right. evangelical culture. And so that that's really how the book started, and it just opened up and widened up from there. And what a timely discussion, just in general, because I'm seeing, I, I'm on a uh, subscriber to The Atlantic, and just recently there's been a, a number of articles The Atlantic has published from Russell Moore and... Um, Jake Medor and a couple other people um, discussing where is the line where, where if we are extracting, um, you know, biblical evangelical theology from what they're now calling the evangelical America, right? Like, like where is that that mm-hmm. split? And so I, I think that this discussion, I'm I'm so happy that you are contributing to this discussion. You know, that's happening kind of globally. It is very timely, uh, and I loved the idea of social imaginaries. I'd never heard that or thought of that before, uh, but it's kind of a peek behind the curtain at how uh, our evangelical structure uh, in the West kind of functions and, and really caused me to question uh, a lot of things in a productive manner. So I appreciate that. Yeah, for your knowledge too, Karen, a lot of our the majority of our listeners on Forefront 360 do come from an evangelical background, um, are, would identify as evangelical, though we do have a pretty strong like kind of subgroup of um, Catholic and Orthodox listeners as well. So um, the discussion, I'm, I'm excited at, of having conversations here and out of here, which is like the kind of constructions of these different imaginaries within Christendom and like what their, their history is and stuff and really interesting. Let's, let's keep going. So after you establish the fact in the book that as humans, we are indeed directed by images and figures and symbolism and narratives that become a sort of collective imaginary, um, you pose that the evangelical imagination is a unique one that has influenced both the politics and theology in areas where that culture has sway, primarily the UK and the United States. Um, and you're also arguing, that, like we said already, that this imagination has contributed to a culture in crisis. Would you be able to speak to, just for someone who's completely unaware of like what's going on right now, what is the crisis that this culture is facing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think, um, you know, what we're seeing a lot right now around the word evangelical, particularly in the American context, is people questioning well what what is what is it what's the definition people rejecting the label people who once considered themselves evangelical not anymore there's an ex-evangelical movement a movement toward deconstruction um and we're seeing the word evangelical in a lot of headlines as you mentioned in the atlantic and and in you know especially around election time because evangelical has actually been become almost like a category um, to describe voters as opposed Mm -hmm. to a category that describes, you know, a movement within the church. And so that's, you know, the surface level, I think, of the crisis that we're seeing in the headlines and the and the elections and on social media, people rejecting or embracing or questioning the term. But what I'm trying to show in the book 
is that this was like 300 years in the making. Mm -hmm. um, you know, evangelicalism didn't begin in 2016. It didn't even begin in uh, in the 20th century when a lot of people associate it with, you know, the, the split between the fundamentalist movement and um, what Billy Graham and Christianity Today later, you know, identified as evangelicalism. Right. Um, it actually goes back much further to um, England and then America and for good and bad. I mean, this is the this is this is the movement has existed for 300 years. And to understand where we are now, we need to look at where we've been and not just in terms of history and theology um, and and uh, sociology, which a lot of people use, but as you know, I'm giving a different look by looking kind of at um, the collective social imaginary of evangelicals. Yeah. 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 It almost seems to me uh, to be culturally for the evangelical culture, uh, a crisis of definition and identity, uh, which in it has a ton of issues with power, authority structures, everything else uh, that comes with that. But I feel like uh, the language we use and, and these concepts that we base our culture off of, uh, a proper understanding of them and where they come from and sorting through those, uh, that's really what is the crucial point of the crisis if we have a proper understanding a proper definition uh, a proper language to use then i feel like it resolves a lot of things or at least shows what things aren't from a proper basis so. no exactly defining the terms and um the terms get thrown around a lot and 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 so i think just clearing up clearing many things up begins with with us agreeing what we're talking about yeah, yeah. The coming yeah. to like a central definition of terms is <laughs> so foundational to having any sort of productive, you know, progress, I guess, which right. I learned from the book is a very evangelical idea of <laughs> progress and improvement. But, right. Right. <laughs> but we'll get to that. Well, and I think uh, we've hit on this a little bit. This is a different crisis than what I think a lot of key evangelical leaders might point to. Uh, I think a lot of key evangelical leaders might point to uh, what they would call liberalism or wokeness or a social justice movement as the key crisis we're fighting against. Uh, but I think that in your book, you kind of tease out that, no, that's not what it is. Uh, there's actually ideas behind these ideas uh, that we're miscommunicating. And so uh, I was wondering if you might share how some of these concerns might stem from our own social imaginary uh, or our own language. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. And, and maybe just, you know, I, probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with the term social imaginary, but maybe for those who aren't, um, a social imaginary is, it's an idea, it's it, it, you know, a number of writers and thinkers use it, but I draw most heavily from Charles Taylor, um, who wrote a book called Modern Social Imaginaries, and he defines an imaginary you know, it's a, it's a noun um, in the way that I'm using it. Um, and the book is more about that than, than what most people think of when they think of the term imagination. But um, an imaginary is, like, is a collective pool of stories, images, metaphors, myths, legends, um, concepts, ideas that are lurking beneath the surface. Taylor says that they're precognitive, uh, mm -hmm. but we've inherited them. They're part of our culture. There's no one social imaginary that we exist in, and there's no one evangelical social imaginary, but we've inherited certain ideas and ways of seeing and expectations that we might not necessarily know are under the surface or that are driving us or and building our expectations. Um, and so that's really what I'm kind of examining. I'm saying, what are some of the key elements of the evangelical social imaginary? Uh, what's good about them? What's bad? Um, and how are they driving us? And, and you know, as I said before, the impetus of this book really was from teaching in the classroom younger evangelicals. And so many of them just have questions about why why we do things the way we do, and we aren't even aware that um, this is a particularly evangelical way of doing things, um, right. or you know, or, or something gets distorted, or we emphasize it too much, and we don't know why um, we were doing it in the first place. So I've kind of lost track of your question now, but I, I wanted to kind of just make sure everyone knew, um, you know, what I'm talking about when I talk about a social imaginary. 
Yeah. Uh, and I think where, where I was trying to get with the question is uh, that so many of these concerns uh, are really underlying the fact that, hey, this comes from our own social imaginary. So uh, many of these ideas might even be evangelical in nature that key evangelical leaders might actually be arguing against, which is uh, kind of ironic to see happening. Right. Yeah, yeah. And since you mentioned that you have, you know, evangelical listeners and those who aren't like Catholics and so forth, it's just, you know, we could, we've all had conversations, you know, imagine a conversation between an evangelical and Catholic about salvation. And the evangelical who's hearing the Catholic express a faith experience is looking for certain terms or certain ways of presenting that mm -hmm. story and, and, and fears perhaps that the Catholic friend um, is not a Christian because they, communicate using different images yeah. or stories and so that's something that the people we might not just even know that we're drawing from a very different social imaginary about what it means to um embrace the christian faith yeah, so that's you, like one example yeah. i identified so strongly with uh, i'm forgetting what chapter it's in but that you were discussing in the book the fear that you yourself experience and many evangelicals experience of you know I'm paraphrasing, but like, did my last altar call really count? You know, like, right. you know, how many of these do I need to have this central uh, turning point in my life where now I'm a new creation, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, actually that, I didn't even mean this, but that leads me pretty well into the next question I want to ask, which is, um, and you don't have to answer, you know, each uh, iteration of this question, right? <laughs> but um, so the, one of the great works that this book does is that you kind of delineate what are the features that create the evangelical imaginary. Um, but if you wouldn't mind for the listener, what makes in, in kind of like a, a way, you know, flyover summary, what makes the e evangelicals different mm -hmm. fundamentally from definitely like a Catholic Orthodox, but then also even maybe like a mainline Protestant Anglican mm -hmm. Lutheran, you know, yeah, no, I love that question. It okay, really cool. is, yeah, 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 it's important. So, and, um, you know, so we have all of these faith traditions within Christendom, and I would place evangelical, I mean, evangelicalism began in the early 18th century in England and then in the, you know, across this transatlantic in America in the form of the Great Awakenings. Evangelicalism, you know, it's, it's significant that it began in England because England um, had, you know, its own reformation, as mm -hmm. many countries had them. And, um, and that, that re the reformation, obviously, is, is part of the Protestant reformation. But the pr reformation in England was never really, um, you know, it wasn't clean and sharp and really doctrinally sound. It was over, you know, the king's desire to get a divorce right. and marry someone else, right? And so... And it gave birth to multiple subsequent reformations, e like the Puritans, exactly, the Baptists. Exactly, yeah, so yeah. The, right. Mm -hmm. so the, So evangelicalism was one of those iterations that was, you know, basically arose in the context of uh, a country in which there was a state church mm -hmm. and Christianity had become, you know, was, was large, largely, not entirely, but largely nominal. I mean, if one was born in England, unless one was, you know, a, a member of, a, of an outsider family, one was just, a, a, was a Christian and a, a member of the Church of England, that was just assumed. And evangelicals came along and said, no, there must be a conversion experience and we want to emphasize the Bible and Christ's crucifixion. Um, those are the emphases. But the other thing that I want to say um, that really helps us, I think, to understand evangelicalism is that it was very, it's very much the child of modernity and the enlightenment mm -hmm. because evangelicals emphasized the individual conversion experience and sort of the subject subjectivity of that that experience so they they placed a high value on the individual and they placed a high value on the experiential aspect of of salvation and conversion mm -hmm. and and faith and that's what defines really the modern age and so evangelicalism is modern in that sense for all it's good and bad about modernity. Um, and that it also differs from other faith expressions that are older or that um, emphasize the church and community more than individual experience. So those are just yeah. like, that's the overview of the difference. I think. E even though it did 
evangelicalism, as you said, um, was kind of born in Victorian England, you know, so or at least like picked up steam, you know, in that era. It, it seems to me that it's the first, I'm searching for the proper terms, right? But it's the first like iteration of Christianity that is fully divorced from monarchy. You know, like the idea of like the imaginary that's created by living in a, in a monarchic society, right? Contributes to the way, like, like the king of England being the head of the church of England, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or whatever. And mm-hmm. the idea of, um, that just really, really interests me that the, the intersection of these, like how politics and the arts and literature, like really do affect mm-hmm. You know, that there's a, a cross effect from both these, which is great. I was very interested too in the you you touched again on the specific contributions that were made by the Puritans and also like the Methodists as well to like what the what evangelicalism is. Uh, and I I just I had didn't know that history, so that was really cool and helped me to kind of see my own uh, where I like sit in this historical line, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so much of what you talk about with social imaginaries uh, shapes our desires today and what we pursue, uh, which in turn shapes the culture, and the culture turns back around and shapes the imaginaries, uh, and, and there's all of these things going on. Uh, and so uh, kind of w- one of the questions that I had uh, in a conversation with a friend about the book uh, as I was reading it was – if we have a cultural Christianity, uh, even within our own churches, uh, if it's just a cultural Christianity, a Christianity that is modified by the culture, or if we have a culture of Christianity where the culture is being modified by our faith, uh, and this this cultural train uh, that we see more broadly outside of even our faith, uh, one that might be headed into crisis, uh, is this a train that we need to redirect or... Do we su- do you suggest potentially dropping it and abandoning that train altogether and just reclaiming our faith and not being concerned about the culture as a whole? No, I mean I this is this is a I'm glad you asked this because this is a point I want to make clear. Um, what I in in the book I'm trying to separate out what is sort of um, you know just of culture, whether Victorian culture or modern American culture, and what is truly evangelical or, you Mm. know, even more importantly, Christian. Um, But we are, you know, this is the job for Christians, no matter what culture they live in, right? I'm writing about our culture, my culture, and its history. But if I had lived 500 years ago, my job, my task would be the same. If I lived right now, you know, half a globe away in an entirely different culture, my job as a Christian would still be the same. So I'm not saying evangelicals are particularly bad at, you know, uh, uh, being influenced by the culture. I mean, maybe, maybe we are, but, um, but you know, we, we are as human beings, God put us on this earth. He situates us within families and communities and societies and times and places. And all of those have cultures. And so our job is going to be the same no matter what. Um, and so, uh, and and there are different views, as you suggest in your question about, you know, what our relationship to the culture should be. We have separatist movements. We have transformationist um, expressions of Christianity. I'm very much, um, you know, about cultural engagement. I mean, that's the title of yeah. one of the books that I co-edited. So I really get excited about the idea of Christians engaging the culture, changing the culture, but also we are going we are going to be products of our culture. I, you know, if you met me on the street, the first thing you would think about me if you if I you saw me and I spoke, you'd just assume like. Like, oh, I'm an American. Um, you know, so that is part of who I am. And also, I am a Christian. Uh, if you go and you see Christians in other places around the world, before you know they're a Christian, you're going to know, oh, you know, they are Indian or, oh, they are Scottish. Um, so this is part of, you know, uh, what it means to be human. And so yeah. uh, we still have the, we, ha- we still have this task, though, of being good, you know, faithful Christians in the culture in which God has put us and distinguishing between what is cultural and what is Christian. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm very much about, yeah, yeah, those two things. Yeah. Yeah. We are definitely 
people of an enculturated faith, no matter what culture you're a part of. Exactly. So, uh, you said yeah, that so much more simply than I did. <laughs> so. well, well, I, I, I do think, that. yeah, I think it's important for us to underline, like if there's anything that I have, you know, uh, like triple underlined for myself while reading your book is the fact that regard, like you said, regardless of your like Christian faith tradition or culture or whatever, there is a, we are influenced by, like our faith is influenced yeah. by right. cultural factors. And it is a mm -hmm. essential work that no matter who you are, listener, like mm -hmm. look at, you know, t test what you believe against, mm -hmm. like test the spirits, test it against scripture, right? You know, this yeah. is- I uh, mean, read the letters of Paul. I mean, this is half of his letters are like, uh, you're taking on too much of the surrounding culture, church, right? right I mean, right, right, right. so even, you and, know- And that's, you know, mere <laughs> decades after Christ's <laughs> right. ascension, you know, right. so. Yeah. Right, yeah. The, it seems the, the way we distinguish between what man and God have established in our social imaginaries is by returning to what God has already said. Uh, right. And, and yeah, one of the beautiful things, I think, uh, with distinguishing those things, like you said, is we have to engage the culture, right? And, and when we do that, sometimes we find things that maybe God has established in a piece of cultural art uh, or a piece of literature uh, that maybe we were not paying attention to before. Uh and the, the role of an artist in creating these social imaginaries so is highly important. I'm so glad you said that because Forefront 360 at the end of the day is we're, we're presenting you with, with conversations at the intersection of art, creativity, and historical Christian faith. So I'd love to ask you, Karen, what do you see as the role of an evangelical artist or writer in the present moment in contributing in a godly way to this evangelical imagination? Mm. Well, I'm going to draw on uh, one of my um, Catholic influences in answering this question, and that is Jacques Maritain, who also influenced Flannery O'Connor and, and others. And um, in his little book, Art and Scholasticism, he talks about how a Christian artist should be an artist first. Um, and that the faith will, yeah, the faith will flow from that. Um, and, and I think that's true of evangelicals as well. Um, you know, so art, you know, art, it, 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 you know, we, we say this about art because it is, you know, it is particularly resonant with, with theological meaning. It is an expression of us as creators, but you know, if, if you're a dentist, if you're a dentist, who's a Christian, um, you need to be, you need to be a good dentist and yeah, a good Christian, a right? Christian dentist. Right, right, Like you're right. a dentist who's good. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And so uh -huh. you should be good at t doing the dental work. And then also you should be Christian in, in, you know, your, your, your business practices and your ethics and, and so forth. Um, and the same is true of an artist. Um, and so, um, so even if an artist, an evangelical artist feels called to specifically, you know, create art that might carry an overtly religious message, which is fine, it still should be good art. And yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, so that's, that, that doesn't really, that's just the beginning. And then of course there are many yeah. Yeah. Um, questions that follow that. So, but. so would you say that, and uh, this is not a prepared question, just going off the dome here. Would you say that perhaps trying to purposely let like many of our listeners are evangelical artists right so or i'm sorry artists of with evangelical faith um <laughs> would would you say that it is a mistake to try purposefully to contribute to that bank of culture so to speak that influences the evangelical imagination like like would you say that if someone sat down and said like i'm going to write a whatever screenplay that is going to contribute to to this imagination is that the wrong place to begin should you no, just be no 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 your... absolutely not i mean i write books for evangelicals right okay, <laughs> so yeah. uh so no of course that's not wrong but i think it's also important to know not just what you're doing but why you're doing it know the purpose of talos right mm, yeah. and your know your audience too so if you are trying to reach an evangelical audience or you're try trying to reach an unbelieving audience with the message of the God, you have to know what you're doing and you have to know why. Right. 
and because no one's going none of us as artists or dentists are going to serve all people for you know all time in all places so we have to know who whom we're serving um and uh and create according to that purpose and to know that that purpose is not all purposes and so um and and i think that may be the mistake that we often make um even even sometimes my own message um is criticized by maybe fellow believers because because they don't like sometimes i write things that are for other people for for a different audience if i write something that's for new york times readers you know, I'm going to say things sure, for, sure. you know, that for that audience. For the average New York Times reader. Right, yeah. right. And so, but because we live in this digital age where everything is everywhere and people don't know how to, you know, discern mode and venue and audience, you know, they right. think, oh, this doesn't speak to me the way I would want, you know. And so, you know, that, ask me how I know this happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but yeah, so really, we we need to know time, purpose, place, audience, and all those things, and not be try to be um, try to do everything in all that yeah. we do. And the purpose of an artist is to produce and create good art, working with substantive ideas. Uh, if all you want to do is show an idea to people, then you're creating propaganda uh, potentially, uh, which exactly. is dangerous. So uh, exactly, uh, that's a good yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. No matter you know what the which what propaganda is being served, it's still whether it's a Christian or a, a Marxist it's, or an atheist. Like propaganda is still bad. Yeah, yeah, and, and people uh, can tell. In my experience, people can tell when they're being. Well, sometimes they can't, which is a problem. But I was going to say, I feel like a lot of times people can tell when they're being propagandized. You know, particularly in in the uh, hyper information world that we live in now. Right. But the, I would say, uh, Karen, that you, you hit on this idea that for a long time, uh, Christian artists don't produce good art. You, you talk about that uh, even in the evangelical, evangelical imagination. Uh, and it almost seems like that waters down many of the concepts that our faith is based on uh, so that we end up arriving at the same problem that maybe was set out to be solved in the Reformation, uh, particularly in the chapter on conversion. Uh, and it it's not that we're not emphasizing it, but the way we're emphasizing it is not of substance. Uh, so would you say the, the role of an artist is to create substantive art and allow the ideas that you're interacting with flow from that first? Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to the question, what is the purpose of art? Um, And there are lots of different answers to that question. And some answers are better than others. For some people, they think art is just self-expression. Well, art does express itself, but that's all if that's all it's for, then, you know, that's what diet, you know, you could keep a diary. Um, If it's, you know, if if it's for something more like to, as you said, to to communicate something substantive, then you have to say, okay, so if it's a substantive message, I need to have a skillful way of communicating that whatever my medium is. And I also need to respect the message and the audience enough to realize that they, you know, to present something that they can wrestle with and that they can weigh and consider rather than me just telling them. Um, yeah. So again, it has to do with the, the form, the medium, the audience and the purpose. And so many people just don't even ask the question about purpose. And so that's, and that's really the very first question that needs to be asked. Yeah. Follow up question that that's kind of on the idea of what concepts or, or images uh, we portray. Do you think uh, that there are any concepts or, or imaginaries that would be especially poignant and fruitful for an artist to look into uh, in the coming years or decades as we seek to kind of reclaim and even reform our evangelical imagination? Oh, I think there's I think there's so much um, fruitful um, areas that artists could consider. And again, part of this is um, I mean, this is just a biblical idea, but it's it. Well, I don't mean just a biblical idea. I'm just saying I'm not making it up. But um, knowing the times, you know, it's like so knowing your the times and it is also part of knowing your audience. And so if we have an audience, if we live in a time in a place where our audience is. 
you know, has, because ever, all times and places have their own sort of errors and distortions. And so I think we live, you know, many people have said we live in a time, let's just say, for example, that is overemphasizes expressive individualism, right? Let's just mm-hmm. say that's a quality of our time. Well, then let's gently or maybe not so gently create art that helps people to not indulge that, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah. Um, so there are, there are things that are going, you know, whatever the excesses or characteristics of a time and place an audience are, we need to push in the other direction, not yeah. overcorrect, but just kind right. of help people to see, to, to have a more holistic understanding by correcting whatever errors our community is, tends to be going in. Yeah. Um, that's a kind of a vague answer, but for, you know, for example, I, I, maybe a more concrete example is that um, you know I, one of my areas of expertise um, and study is satire. I love satire. I've always loved satire, um, and yet I I recognize that we live in an age right now where satire is hard and tricky and often hurtful, um, which is hard for me because I do love it so much. But I've also mm-hmm. um, but but knowing my audience and knowing what they need because we we have you know a whole you know the young people that are coming up today just this is an overgeneralization but they many of them have been hurt and wounded and they are broken and so like satire isn't the thing that's going to be the first thing that speaks to them and helps you know that that yeah i mean there's different devices for different jobs yeah exactly and And you have to know what the job what the job is for the moment so yeah yeah very well said uh, along uh, a similar line of what you may like in, in terms of art, uh, are there any artists, poets, or authors that you would recommend who do a great job of engaging the culture uh, and who are trying to reform or reclaim uh, elements of our evangelical social imaginaries? So, I mean, he's not an evangelical, but I do think a great artist that I really love is Terrence Malick and his films that, yeah, yeah, they really um, evoke beauty and wonder and theology in a way that I think is artistic and inviting and not heavy handed. Um, and even, you know, they, in a sense there, maybe he is, maybe I can call him an evangelical, like even, um, even uh, the film a hidden life you know that that's actually like kind of an activist film which is what evangelicals love right but it just shows a different um flavor of that so i i love his work real Um, quickly listeners we actually have a review on the forefront festival blog about that film so if you if you're unfamiliar (laughs) jump back into the forefront archive and look up uh that film, Terrence Malick. Yeah, no, right. so that, he's the first that comes to mind. But um, yeah, my 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 ta- you know my tastes tend to be um, traditional and classical, and so I'm always hesitate to answer because I'm not up on all like the current day artists and writers no, we and love, so forth. But <laughs> yeah. we love the classical. Yeah. Go for oh, it. Yeah. I mean Flannery Flannery O'Connor. I mean she's not classical, but Flannery O'Connor. I just I, you know she's not for everyone because she's harsh and and hard and and abrupt and scary um but she's i think she really makes us confront some things about you know a culturally christian society so i think she's great um yeah i mean there yeah. could so i actually many. ask a question for myself yeah believe it or not this is this is going to bother some some people on the you know on the on the pod but i am not i'm an english teacher uh i consider myself pretty versed in in you know the, the the typical authors and artists that that Christians love, but I have not yet read Flannery O'Connor. So oh, where yeah, do you start? I'm, you want to know where to start? I, yeah, where should I start? Yeah, I love that question. Okay, so the first story anyone should read by Flannery O'Connor, in my opinion, is Revelation. Okay. Um, because if you read Revelation and you, and I think it's her, it's the one where she kind of makes most explicit what she's doing, which is to show. Um, sort of an, the moment uh, in which someone very undeserving receives grace, not by anything that they did or, you know, it's just completely um, comes awesome. from outside, from God, and then how that changes them. If you read that story, kind of looking for that, and that's very clear, and then you can read all the other stories realizing that's almost what they all do mm. is okay. show someone undeserving 
unexpectedly, often violently receiving grace. Um, so revelation, awesome. and then also um, everything that rises must con- start with revelation. The one, then the ones I'd say everything that rises must converge. A good man is hard to find, and good country people. Those those would be sort okay. of the next group, and then anything after that. And if you, I'm sorry, this is turning no, into no, Flannery O'Connor show. If you, you know, if you want to know, hear or read her talking about what she's doing, how and why, then her, and, and also things that apply to all artists, then read her collection of essays and lectures, mystery and manners. It's really okay, good. Cool. Well, th- this is uh, shows how closely I've been orbiting this because other than revelation, actually I've heard many times of all those other stories so I, i've been orbiting these stories i just got to dive yeah. in so that's just revelation awesome. is the first one yeah i'll start there i'll start yeah. there and uh rich I, I encourage you that there's a great chapter in on reading well uh that covers this so okay awesome. <laughs> you should go read that's that a, <laughs> both of the yeah on, uh, revelation and everything and that rises, everything must, that rises converge. must converge okay great great mm-hmm. so yeah i'll have to start reading thanks for that shout well. out <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So. um that's awesome yeah, I've been I've been uh, doing slowly, personally working through like a great books list, and I'm I'm still with the Greeks. So okay, it's yeah, gonna be, yeah. It's gonna you're gonna be have a to minute, skip ahead, skip ahead. Yeah, you'll yeah, never yeah, get yeah, to yeah, her. Yeah. <laughs> stuff. Awesome. So, are there any? Um, just before we move on from that, are there any other? Um, really, any anybody, but whether they would consider themselves an artist or just like any sort of like thinkers, writers, speakers out there that you would recommend us looking into. It's very cliche, but I love Van Gogh. Um, I think, you know, and and not just his artwork, which speaks for itself and its sort of liveliness and its color and its texture, but his life story is also very poignant because he, you know, I mean, yes, he had, you know, mental illness, but um, he also, he just, he felt like he had to choose between the church and art. Right. And that's mm-hmm. the real tragedy of his life. And there's a lesson there for us. We shouldn't have to choose and yeah. i do love gerard manley hopkins um and i actually just coming out in a couple of weeks actually is a new edition of um traveling light by eugene peterson and i wrote the oh. foreword for that and i kind of explicate one of hopkins poems in there awesome. so so you can just get that book just for that to get a little lesson in i'm, hopkins I'm adding this me. to my yeah. to my notebook right mm-hmm. now well, likewise Slightly off topic, but I thought of it when you were talking about these recommendations and Flannery O'Connor. I actually, so it's it's funny because this is going to be like a meta comment here, but um, in the evangelical imagination, you talk about the various pieces of literature that have contributed to the idea of the conversion experience. And um, in one of the chapter subtitles, you reference Ebenezer Scrooge. So um, this is funny to me. Um, I don't think I've ever mentioned this on a podcast before, which is pretty un-evangelical, as the book told me. But my sort of testimony um, actually revolves around A Christmas Carol, where I had... So so your book really rings true with me. Uh, please share this testimony. Oh, no, I mean, oh, I just... No, basically, I, I grew up... And my parents who listen to this, I apologize for this, but I grew up in a Christian home. Um, my parents were... Roman Catholic when I was born, um, but then they uh, had an evangelical born again experience when I was young and joined a non-denominational church with effectively Baptist theology. Um, And so I grew up in that church. It was a great, great church, still love this church, Uh, but I was very nominal, you know, just like because I grew up, we went to church, my friends were from church, I, you know, whatever. And my parents did a great job. This is not a knock on them at all. I just wasn't, um, I hadn't had my great awakening to borrow the term. No, but the, uh, but anyway, I like, well, Christianity was just the water that I swam in, I guess. Mm -hmm. And not at all to knock public school, but I went to public school. Most of my friends were not Christian. Just, that's just how it was. Anyway. Um, but then when I was a senior in high school, I actually, this is like, so like a little bit embarrassing actually, but I went to see the, um, Jim Carrey, Robert Zemeckis movie of A Christmas Carol, uh, which came out in 2009. And I was, I had known the story forever, you know, but I was absolutely like struck to the core by Ebenezer Scrooge's transformation. And um, the, the, the change that he experienced from an, an absolutely godless, heartless person and, you know, into someone who was 
just it wasn't so much the generosity like everyone thinks like scrooge is a miser then he's generous right but on top of that at the end of the story he's literally overflowing with joy yes, yes, you know yeah so it like it, yeah so like that you know sort of thing but anyway then after that i bought um a copy of the the book and read the dickens and i've reread it multiple times since then and each time that i've re- i actually taught it in my ninth grade class last year but uh each time i reread it 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 speaks to me uh, differently mm-hmm. um d- like Dickens is so dense, you know, that you can like discover new things each time you read it. But anyway, really the point, the point being that uh, as I was reading in your book about how A Christmas Carol, among other things, is a great example of like the evangelical narrative that really like took, took hold of British and American culture. I, I really like, I feel like my life is testament that of the truth of that because I accredit myself having or committing myself personally to my faith to reading a christmas carol oh you know so, so, i yeah, love so. this so much yeah 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 wow so it's also funny because people like people that are friends with me like pick on me or not pick you know in all in good fun about like um i like love like christmas carol and so anytime there's like a any iteration of it like around christmas right when it comes on tv and and every year they seem to make like a new adaptation of it or whatever and i like all of them so you know the muppet christmas carol whatever and so people that are close to me get the joke they're like oh yeah rich and the christmas carol and then people even jokingly will be like yeah he just loves it because it introduced him to god you know whatever <laughs> that, you know, is, but, that is so yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. if i ever do a revised edition of this book i will get your permission but i want to include this story because that's, oh, the, wow. that's my whole point of like Ebenezer Scrooge is such a great example of, you know, the evangelical conversion and um, testimony. So And truly a truly a new creation. Yeah. You know, like yeah. like the the, dr- the dramaticness mm-hmm. of his change is so mm-hmm. powerful to me. But yeah, maybe that's a recommendation. Read Charles Dickens' A yes. Christmas Carol. Yes. It's a short novella, five staves. You can do it in one or two sittings. I would love to switch to a different, uh, a slightly different mode here and present you with a couple, we call them listener questions, but I really would more like to call them community questions. People that are, um, we've been honored to have as part of the Forefront community that uh, found out that we were talking to you about this book and uh, submitted some questions. So I'd love to ask you this one, which is from professor and fellow writer, and I think friend Jessica Hooten Wilson. Do you guys know each other? Oh yeah. Yep. She's cool, great. Cool. Yep. So she asked this question, and you know, I, I expected nothing less, you know, from a question from her. But um, the question is: the medieval conception of imagination involved remembering images by which you made quote new things. What images should evangelicals remember from our past to make good culture in the present and for the future? Hmm. That's a great question. So in in some ways, this whole book is an act of remembering, right? It's, it's I'm trying to help evangelicals remember our how we began and why we began this way. So I would say one, you know, one thing to we need to remember and have an image of is what we just talked about is like conversion. Um, mm. and, you know, genuine conversion, which doesn't have to be dramatic, um, even though those are great stories, as, as I talk about in the book. But and I love how you focused in on on Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge's joy. That's mm-hmm. what he really gained in his conversion, um, which, again, this is a secular conversion story, but it but it really, um, you know, is it does teach us much about a Christian conversion. So I think right. remembering the joy of our salvation, um, to use the biblical term, is, is important. And to remember, um, you know, again, part of the whole project of this book is that evangelicalism is very wrapped in culture um, because it was kind of reacting to culture. So I think that's mm-hmm. partly in our DNA. I mean, if you react to something, that's just going to be always part of who you are is you are reacting against something. And that is, yeah. you know, where we came from. But um, to remember 
you know, why we were reacting that way and to remember that so much is cultural and, and to yeah. remember what is at the core of it rather than what is cultural. And that's, you know, I, um, Jessica's question was so good. Um, and, you know, evangelicals, one of the one of the other four qualities that Bebbington identifies as characteristic of evangelicalism is um, the centrality of Christ's crucifixion. Well, that you know we that is so important doctrinally and theologically. But it's interesting since since Jessica is comparing Catholics and evangelicals, Catholics mm -hmm. remember the crucifixion by by displaying Christ on the cross so that we are mindful of his suffering and his passion um, for us. Evangelicals and Protestants depict the cross without Christ because we want to remember the, the victory of the resurrection. And, and mm -hmm. you know, that I'm, I'm fine with that. But we also do tend to overlook and forget the suffering, the passion. Yeah. And we need to remember that, not just Christ, but our own. Like, we aren't supposed to be, you know, all hunky-dory in this world and in this culture. Um, and right. we aren't supposed to expect that, that the world will be hospitable to all of our beliefs and ideas. So I think we need to remember Christ on the cross. Yeah. I, I in a similar way, I often uh, remember... I remember growing up, again, growing up in an evangelical church, right, and going to Sunday school, and I remember me and my friends, we were like in, you know, maybe elementary age, we're talking about like which one of the apostles we would like to be, you know, or whatever, like like one of the Avengers. And um, <laughs> I remember, but, and I remember being really like hit hard at, at that young age when I realized that like each of the apostles lived an extremely difficult life on <laughs> earth after Christ. And, you know, who wants these, to be that, right? <laughs> right. And, and a lot of these records are, you know, like apocryphal, but, you know, each of the apostles dying brutally, you know, at, at the hands of the people that they're yeah. evangelizing to, you know, so, so um, it, it's, you can't have like true, you can't have true Christianity without the balance of suffering and joy. Yeah. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. Along those same lines of images, uh, I'd be, very curious uh are there any early evangelical figures uh that you think had a good grasp on on these kinds of concepts before maybe they were uh distorted further and further by culture or, or changed i should say mm -hmm. by by culture uh that maybe we can go and, and read their stories or look back to them even as images. I, I'm big on looking at the apostles or, or early church fathers or uh, different saints throughout history and, and hearing their stories as uh, people to emulate uh, of faith. Well, I, you know, I, I talk about him in the book, but there's so much more that could be read and studied, and that's John Wesley. Um, I mean, John Wesley was one of the originators of what came to be called later the evangelical movement, and you know, it's easy to kind of make fun of him, you know, like, you know, he's talked about his heart being strangely warmed in this conversion experience, but that's because he was, you know, he was living in what he, you know, what for him was sort of a cold, rational religious context um he was trying so hard in his holy club to kind of live this rigid methodical life by following the rules but then he had this heart transformation and he went on to convert so many people out in you know in the open air with his preaching and he also was a, a determined and and vociferous abolitionist um, and so many of us in evangelicalism, mm -hmm. because of our, you know, our sordid history on race and slavery, we sometimes forget that we actually come from, you know, we come at least in part from those who could see beyond their cultural blind spots and right. stood for what was right. So I think John Wesley is a great example. William Wilberforce was an evangelical. You know, he's a couple of decades yeah. later. Um, I mean, we just have so many. Also big into abolition. Yes. Yeah. Pretty yeah. big. Pretty yeah. big name. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think the 18th century has a lot to offer us. Yeah. Abolition's a good image to, to hold on to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> also, Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I teach at uh, a class at Roberts Wesleyan University here in, in Rochester that was founded by B.T. Roberts, who founded the Free Methodist hmm. Movement. And the idea of the, the 
the reason why he chose the name Free Methodist, right, was to to employ the image of freeing enslaved peoples mm. and then also making the church free to all where he was yeah. re- resisting the uh the pew system mm. you know mm-hmm. so so mm-hmm. just so interesting wow. the uh yeah. the image of freedom being really uh inextricable from evangelicalism which yeah. is cool and, and freedom from slavery that that's a that that seems very poignant especially with the the talk on conversion and testimony uh through uh, the the evangelical imagination, slavery itself, and the abolition from it uh, is a a big image, and it's mm-hmm. uh, something that points to the fact that maybe uh, we we are also before we are saved slaves to something else, right? right. Uh, and, and so there, there's freedom yeah. there in Jesus. Uh, but those are some good images, also. Yeah. I believe we have another question, uh, community question. Yeah, we got another question for you from yeah. our good friend, uh, fellow professor again, writer, poet, uh, Benjamin Myers uh, from Oklahoma Baptist University. He asks, if we have witnessed cultural decline due to the stories we tell, what role can art play in cultural renewal beyond just telling better stories? Mm-hmm. And then he says, how far can a return to beauty go in your eyes in repairing that damage and then he he quotes uh dostoevsky and says can beauty save the world Mm. yeah i love that question um it's yeah it's a hard one Uh, yeah because we do hear tell better stories an awful lot and it's a little bit maybe too it's kind of vague advice yeah yeah and so (laughs) i think before we can actually tell better stories we need to read better stories um not to sound like a broken record but we just Yeah, we don't even know how to tell stories that are good or tell them well anymore. So there and there are so many examples that go before us. So um, we can look to Mm -hmm. those. Um, So read better stories, watch better stories um, before we try to tell better stories. And, you know, can beauty save the world? Well, I think truth, goodness and beauty can save Mm -hmm. the world. Um, And you really can't have one without the other two. Um, So I think, again, we need to think about all of those. One of the things I say in the book, and I I think my publisher made this into a little meme, I'll paraphrase myself, but it's the the gist of it is that, you know, that that beauty apart from truth is just sentimentality, right? I mean, Mm. beauty has to encompass truth. We can say something is beautiful, um, but it's not truly beautiful unless it also um, is true and good and um you know that's a whole um you know that would be a whole other at least another episode to talk about those three things but uh even if you know just to hold that in our in our minds and to think okay we've got to have all three of those together then i think we can begin to tell better stories awesome yeah Yeah, i i love the the encouragement to uh it's almost like the uh the bucket analogy right like you can't uh I can't put out a fire mm-hmm. with with a bucket until it's been filled with water first, you know. And the idea that we we I, I think a lot of us, cr- especially I'm going to call us out here, young uh, millennial or Gen Z creatives. I feel like we want to spend all of our time creating, mm-hmm. but like you can't build something until you've put something. You know, you need materials, you need inspiration, you need you know. And I I think that it's good advice for all of us to spend more time inputting rather than trying to solely output and then wondering why the output isn't yeah. quality. You know what I mean? Yeah. Good stuff. Well, yeah. I think we're, we're approaching our time here. Uh, but any, any final uh, questions or, or thoughts? Uh, I have a couple of takeaways and I was going to oh. see uh, if, if you had any more to add, uh, but a couple of takeaways that I saw were that we are a people of enculturated faith. Uh, I only had time to think about that because you were telling me about it, Karen. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, that as artists, we ought to strive to make good art, uh, which means we need to look back to good art. Uh, and then yeah. I, I guess the last takeaway is we didn't get here by accident, uh, but that there's centuries uh, of mm. thinkers that yeah. led to this. And so those are the thinkers we need to look back to. So, yeah. Yeah. We can't divorce ourselves from history. 
right. you know we exist right. in a strain good stuff but definitely listeners pick up a copy of this book Brazos Press The Evangelical Imagination How Stories Images and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis by Karen Swallow Pryor um we could keep talking about this and I, I'd love to you know we won't you know hook you right away but I'd love to have future conversations with you um, but, uh, we are, we are at our time here. So if any of our listeners have further questions for you or would like to learn more about your writing, uh, where would be the best place for them to find you online? Uh, well, the easiest place to kind of find where everything is, is my website, karenswallowprior.com. Um, but if you want to d- dive more deeply, I have a new, um, newsletter on Substack called the Priory. So you can get a subscription Houston to that for free that and yeah, yeah. So awesome. Excellent. Actually, Houston, uh, while, while we got you here, if uh, people want to connect with you, where's the best place they can connect with you as well? Uh, Instagram, at Houston Arledge. That's A-R-L-E-D-G-E. And Houston spelled just like the city. So Cool. So again, even though we already said it, Karen, so cool to meet you and, and have you on. I would say finally have you on, but to you, you, know, you don't know how long we've been pining <laughs> to have you on. But uh, thank you for being here on 4 for 360. Uh, listeners, if you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe to Forward360 on your favorite podcast app. Um, let us know what you thought of this episode over on Instagram or Twitter slash X. What do we call it now? <laughs> uh, over at X at Forefront Fest. Um, we are not yet on uh, threads, but you know maybe we'll get over there. Again, that is at Forefront Fest. Please give us a follow and connect. We'd love to hear from you and continue this conversation. Until next time, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art. <laughs>